Some Christians may be surprised to find out that heaven will be made up largely of people who do not look like them or have the same background. In fact, Scripture teaches that Christ is redeeming a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that is the reason why we need a global perspective of worship. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, Radical.net. We need this global perspective of worship. However, as David Platt points out in today's message from Revelation chapter 7, there is a unity to this beautiful and God-glorifying diversity. Because the Christian's fundamental identity is in Christ, we should gladly lock arms with other believers to give praise to the one who has died for us. So we need both unity and diversity in our worship. And with that, here is Pastor David with a sermon titled, Unity in Diversity, from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. You have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Let me invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 7. Last book in the Bible. What is corporate worship in heaven? What does it look like? And how is our corporate worship today a reflection of what we will do for all of eternity? It's the question I want us to dive into this morning. Let me encourage you as you're pulling out your Bibles, if you don't have one, to find somebody around you who does. We're going to be all over Scripture this morning, turning a lot, so just kind of get your fingers ready, get your notes out. We're going to be all over the place. This chapter we're looking at in the book of Revelation is is foundational. I'm convinced it's one of the most important passages in the book of Revelation, maybe even one of the most difficult as far as interpretation goes, but all of the Bible is all over this thing, especially in the Old Testament. So you're going to need your Bible. We are coming to the last week this morning of this series on corporate worship, this study we've been doing. We started off, looked at Nehemiah chapter 12, the picture of community in corporate worship. We're not just a gathering of individual worshipers. We are a community of faith. The next week, we looked at Revelation chapter 19, humility. Worship is extremely God-centered. And we looked at John chapter 4, honesty how we need to come before God authentically, not only with God, but also with each other, honest with Him about our sin, about our struggles. Then last week, we looked at Psalm chapter 19 and Psalm 119 and looked at clarity and the need for for both revelation and response to be a part of our worship. Now we're looking at diversity. And here's the biblical truth that's going to be the foundation for our time together today. Corporate worship, worship reflects two elements, the unity and diversity of heaven. Worship is a reflection of the unity and diversity of heaven. And what I want us to do is see that unfold in this passage in Revelation chapter 7. There's, I mentioned this is a, a difficult passage when it comes to interpretation. You read different things about this passage and you'll find all kinds of different opinions, views, perspectives on different parts of this text. My goal this morning is for us to look at what we, what we do know. And I want us to see what this passage has to teach us about worship today. It is an incredible picture. Look at Revelation chapter 7. We'll start in verse 9. This is where all of history is headed toward. Get the picture. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the Lamb will be at the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What I want you to see in this passage is unity and diversity coming together. We have got diversity, a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. That is an extremely diverse picture. At the same time, in the middle of the diversity, they're singing one song, and they're all dressed in the same thing. There is unity in diversity. So what I want us to do is I want us to think about how these come together in Revelation chapter 7. And then after we've seen that, seen what unites us, even across a diverse body of Christ, what unites us, then we're going to think about the implications of this text for our corporate worship. So how do unity and diversity come together in Revelation chapter 7? First picture I want you to see that unifies us is that we have all been here it is. We've all been purchased to praise him, purchased to give him praise. This is the unifying picture in Revelation chapter 7. When you get to verse 9, it says after this, which is a reference to what's happened in the first eight verses of Revelation. In order to, to get a picture of what's happening in verses 9 through 17, we need to understand what's happened in verses 1 through 8. So if you turn back, what you see is a picture of God talking about how he has sealed his people, Israel, the people of God throughout the Old Testament. I want you to look with me at verse 3, just to read it, get a context, get a picture of what's leading up to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says in verse 3, Do not harm the land of the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And what you see in verses 5 down through verse 8 is a list of the different tribes of Israel, and each one of them is attributed to 12,000 people in this picture. So you've got 12 tribes, 12,000 people each, a total of 144,000 people. Now, most people think that this is not just a, this is not a literal reference to exactly 144,000 people. Instead, it's a picture of perfection, of completeness, of God's people, Israel. But, like I said, we're not going to spend our time this morning debating this or that. What I do want you to see, though, is that there is a connection between the people of Israel, God's chosen people that we see throughout the Old Testament. There's a connection between the people of Israel, and then when you get to verse 9 in Revelation chapter 7, a multitude that no one can count from every people, in every language, in every nation, every tribe. So somehow, here in Revelation chapter 7, these are connected together. The, the people of Israel flowing into a multitude that no one could count. And what I want to show you this morning is that this is not just an accidental connection that just happens to appear here at Revelation chapter 7. I'm convinced this has been the plan of God ever since the beginning of the Bible. I want to show it to you. Hold your place in Revelation 7. Let's go back to Genesis, first book in the Bible. I want you to turn me back to Genesis chapter 12. I look at Revelation chapter 7, really all of the book of Revelation in many ways, but especially this chapter, it's kind of a bookend in the Bible. It connects us to what happened at the very beginning. What we've got in Genesis, the introduction, what we've got in Revelation, kind of the conclusion, and it wraps things up. I want us to see these two passages as bookends. Go to Revelation, or Genesis chapter 12. You remember the chapter before this, Genesis chapter 11, is when they tried to build the Tower of Babel and all the nations were scattered, all the nations were divided. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and hear what God says to Abram. This is when the people of Israel began to experience the promise and blessing of God. Listen to this. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's house and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what's happening here at the very beginning of the Bible is God speaking to Abraham, who's the father of the people of Israel, and he's giving him a promise. You've got in your notes right there, and the, 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 we need to see the promise God has made. And it's a promise that God started way back here in Genesis chapter 12. And here was the promise. He said, Abram, I'm gonna bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to pour out my blessings on you. But I want you to see what God promised to do through Abram. He said, as a result of my blessing on you, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. So I'm going to bless you as the leader of the people of Israel and those who come from you. 
But the result is going to be all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Abraham was going to be the, the conduit, so to speak, of God's blessing, receiving God's blessing and being the channel of God's blessing to all the peoples of the world. That's what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I want you to look at the next chapter, Genesis chapter 13. Look at verse 16. You might underline these verses. We started with Genesis 12, 3. Look at Genesis 13, 16. God says to Abraham again, he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count, could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Obviously, no one could count the dust, so the picture is a multitude that no one could count, which is exactly what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Go two more chapters over to Genesis chapter 15. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. And God says this again to Abraham. He says, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will, will be your heir. You might underline verse 5 here. He took Abraham outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, thousands of years later, scientists tell us there's about 70 sextillion stars, which is basically 70 million, million, million stars. And those are the ones that we can see at this point. That's a lot of stars. And so God says, Abraham, let's go outside. I want you to look up here and I want you to see that there will be from your descendants a multitude that you cannot even begin to count. That's what he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Go two more chapters over to chapter 17. Look at chapter 17, verse 3. It says, Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Are you seeing the connection here between Israel and a multitude that no one can count from every nation in Genesis and Revelation chapter 7? Keep going to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Remember when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son? Abraham was obedient was going through with that until God provided a lamb. And you get to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, and God reiterates it again. It's almost like God's trying to make a point here. He says in verse 17 of Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, Abraham had a son. His name was? Okay, this is an audience participation part of our program, all right? Abraham had a son. His name was? Isaac. Go to Genesis chapter 26. Look at Genesis chapter 26. God had made this promise over and over again to Abraham. Was it just Abraham? I don't think it was. Look at Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. You might underline this verse. I will make your descendants, Isaac, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all the what? All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Isaac. Now, Isaac had a son named Jacob. You get two chapters over, you get to Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. And God's keeping this promise alive. God says to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, he's having a vision, a dream, and it says, Jacob, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, that's a pretty stout promise considering Jacob was a single guy at that point. Didn't even have a wife. He's looking for a wife, and he finds out he's going to have descendants that are going to be like the dust of the earth. That's good news for a single guy in Jacob's shoes. And so the promise is now, not just Abraham, not just Isaac, but Jacob, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Go over to Genesis chapter 35. God comes to Jacob again, says the same thing to him. Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. Says, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. Let me show you one more in Genesis. Go to chapter 49. Look at chapter 49. I want you to look with me at verse 8. What Genesis 49 is, is God's blessing through Jacob on the 12 tribes of Israel. It's God's blessing on these different tribes. 
Well, you get to verse 8 and you see God's blessing on the tribe of Judah. Here was the blessing. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the what? Nations is his. Say, David, what does that mean? Well, when you do get over to Revelation chapter 5, you see Jesus described as the lion of the tribe of what? Of Judah. This is a picture here in Genesis 49 of the promise that was to come in Christ. It says the obedience of the nations will belong to him. And it's just a coincidence, maybe, that you get to Revelation chapter 7, and when it's listing the tribes of Israel, guess which tribe is listed first there? It's the tribe of Judah. There is a connection here between God's promises in the book of Genesis over and over and over again that he was going to bless all the peoples and all the nations, a multitude that no one could count, through his people Israel. God, don't miss it, God promised to bless his people so that his glory, his salvation, his blessing would be made known among all the nations of the earth. Now, is this just a Genesis thing? I don't think it is. I think it's all over Scripture. I could go, we could go to numerous places. Let me show you one picture in the prophets. Go with me to Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, it's right before Jeremiah, long book of the prophets. I want you to look with me at Isaiah chapter 49. So will be the other, only other place we look in the Old Testament here in the book of Isaiah. I want you to see two passages that give us a picture of Revelation chapter 7. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. Look at verse 6. This is God. Talk about his purposes among his people. And he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So God says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, which means the nations, all that are not a part of the people of God, of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. What happens in the rest of this chapter is we see God's salvation and the picture of what that is. You get over to verse 10 and it says, they will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. That's exactly, that's a direct quote in Revelation chapter 7. The sun will not beat upon them. There will be no hunger, no thirst among the people of God because all the earth, all the nations will know that he is good through what he does through his people Israel. Here's the other passage I want to show you in Isaiah. Go to the last chapter, Isaiah chapter 66. I told you we'd be turning a lot. and We're just getting started. This is, it's just all over how the Bible comes together in this grand picture. Look at Isaiah chapter 66, verse 18. Let's know what he says about his people and what he's going to do through his people. He says, I, Isaiah 66, 18, because of their actions and their imaginations, I am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, some of my people to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. That's what God was doing among his people throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, saying, I'm going to bless you so that all the nations might receive my blessing, so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He said it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He sang it to his people over and over and over again. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that in light of the fact that Revelation chapter 7 is still in the future, God is still saying the same thing to his people today. What I want to submit to you this morning is that God is still in the business of blessing his people so that his glory and his blessing and his salvation will be made known in all nations. We are the people of God, his church. And God desires to bless his people for the same purpose that has driven history ever since the book of Genesis started. 
And what you see, what's interesting, is that over and over in the Old Testament, you see the Old Testament people of God missing this. Over and over again, you see them getting the idea that the blessing of God was intended to center upon them. And so you see the people of God trying to enjoy his blessing, even expecting his blessing, while indulging themselves in what was frankly self-centered worship. It was not showing the holiness and the greatness and the grace and the mercy of God to the nations. You see them over and over again disconnecting the blessing of God from the purpose of God. Do you think we face the same temptation today? To receive the blessing of God, enjoy, sit back in the blessing of God, and think that somehow, somewhere, God has designed his blessing to center on us. When it's not the case, his design is for his blessing to spread through us to all the nations. Here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. We're not the end game in this picture. God's blessing nowhere in Scripture was intended to center on us and stop with us. It was intended to be spread through us to all nations, a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, people, language, and nation. That was his purpose. It's why Christ came. See the promise that God has made, but see the price that Christ has paid. Jesus came. Why? Luke 24, 47 through 49. He came so that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in all nations. In the very beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4, Jesus himself quotes from the book of Isaiah. And he talks about how the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him to preach good news to the poor. And then you get to the end of that chapter that he quotes from, and he talks about how all the nations will know the greatness of God. So what Jesus did is he did. He preached the good news, mainly to the people of Israel in the Gospels. But then after he dies, on a cross, rises from the grave, he says to his disciples, now repentance and forgiveness of sins will not just be preached to the Jewish people. They will be preached to all nations. You get to Romans chapter 15, verse 7 through 9. Basically, the Bible says there that God sent Jesus to die as a sacrifice so that the Gentile nations might glorify God for his mercy. The whole reason Christ died is to bring worshipers from every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. When you get back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says exactly that. It says Christ was slain so that he could purchase. The word it uses is purchase. Purchase men from every tribe, people, language, and nation. Same four things that we see emphasized in Revelation chapter 7. It's one of four different times in the book of Revelation where nations, tribes, peoples, and languages are all brought together. The global purpose of God is clear here in Revelation chapter 7. Jesus died to redeem worshipers, to save worshipers from every, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Think about it. Jesus shed his blood for every race. He shed his blood for every race, without exception. I want to read you a quote. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. I want you to see if you can, you can guess who wrote it. The only hint I'll give you is that this was written in Birmingham, years ago in Birmingham. Here is what the letter says. I've traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? These questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. Yes, I love the church. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. 
You know who wrote that? Martin Luther King and what became known as the letter from Birmingham jail. And I want to remind you this morning that Jesus Christ died on a cross and shed his blood to ransom worshipers from every race. And that means racial harmony, racial unity is extremely important to the heart of Jesus Christ. It was extremely important that day when the church was missing it, and it's extremely important today when we face the same danger of missing it. In our city, among this faith family, our racial harmony and unity as important to us as it is to Christ. If not, we are missing the point of why Christ died on the cross. Jesus shed his blood for every race. Not just every race, he shed his blood for every people. What does that mean, every people, peoples that we see? May all the peoples praise you, O God. What, what does that mean, peoples? Well, ethnographers help us out some. They've basically tried to identify different people groups around the world that are united together by their cultural understanding and cultural acceptance, what unites them together, whether that could be language or, or different other elements of culture. And basically, ethnographers have identified about close to 16,000 people groups in the world today. You've got about 6.5 billion people in the world. And ethnographers have identified about 15,972 people groups, close to 16,000. Then based on those people groups, what... What they've done is they've looked at which ones are still unreached with the gospel. And unreached would be defined as people groups that are at least less than 2% Christian. In addition to that, do not have an indigenous community of believers, of Christ followers in that people group that are making the gospel known. So out of 15,972 people groups, how many do you think are still unreached with the gospel? The answer is approximately 6,500. 6,500 people groups still unreached. They estimate between two and three billion people. Will you feel the weight of that with me this morning? 6,500 people groups that are predominantly unreached with the gospel. They are the Daozhong people of China, nearly a million of them who live in the mountains of Hunan province that are basically inaccessible to, to other people from the outside world. There's a reason they are unreached. They are engrossed in animism and ancestor worship. They have many health problems because of the mountain climate where they find themselves in. But instead of having medical help for their health problems, they attribute all their diseases to the fact that they have not offered enough sacrifices to their ancestors and to the gods they worship. They are the Komering people group of Indonesia, a violent people group that even many Indonesians say they do not want to travel through areas where they live. 99.9% .9 folk Islam also suffering from deep malnutrition because they bathe and wash their clothes and use the restroom in the same water that they drink and cook with. Then there's the Tukalor people of West Africa, about a million of them living mostly in Senegal. The unemployment rate there has led to girls as young as 13 being sold into prostitution in order to buy goods for their families. They pride themselves on being the first black Muslims and worship with a combination of Islam and animism strung together. There's the Mon people of Myanmar, formerly Burma, the Mon people practice Buddhism and animism combined together. 
10 years old, the boys are put in Buddhist monasteries at 10 years old. And yet within a few years, many of these boys are finding themselves addicted to heroin, which is increasing the HIV AIDS picture in the Mon people group of Myanmar. Then you have the Drukpa of Bhutan, a small country, 600,000 people nestled between China and India, two large countries, this small country of 600,000 people. There are less than five believers in the Drukpa people of Bhutan. They are an animistic people who have their houses littered, scattered all over the doors. You see pictures of demons or idols that have been set up or prayer flags that have been set up to ward away all the evil spirits. Everything is aimed toward warding away all the evil spirits. All of those people groups unreached with the gospel and the list could go on and on and on. 6,500 of them. Jesus shed his blood for the Comoring people of Indonesia and he shed his blood for the Daljong of China and he shed his blood for the Drukpa of Bhutan and the Mons of Myanmar and the Tukalor of West Africa. He shed his blood for all of them. He shed his blood for every race, every people and every language. Linguists tell us that there are close to 7,000 languages in the world. Do you know how many languages still have no copy of God's word? 2,286 of them. 2,286 languages that still have no copy of God's Word. We do realize how shameful it is to debate about which hymns or choruses we're going to sing in our churches when over 2,000 languages still have no written expression of the gospel. pray that Revelation chapter 7 will be a reminder to us that Almighty God does not mean for His worship to be confined to multi-million dollar buildings filled with predominantly white, rich Americans. God means for his worship to unite all races and all peoples and all languages in one chorus of diverse, beautiful praise. And he promises to bless the church that believes that. He promises to bless the church that believes that. We are his people when we abandon ourselves to live for the global praise of God, then we realize the very purpose for which he, which he purchased us, and we are assured of his blessing. Let's be that people. And let's live for Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Let's let it drive us. Let us let it be the vision that wakes us up in the morning and directs our paths and our ambitions and our career choices and our lives and our families. We want to gather in a multitude that no one can count from every tribe, every people, every language, every nation to sing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the purpose of worship. We have all been purchased to praise Him. Second, we have all been sanctified to serve him. We've been sanctified to serve him. Now, this word sanctified, basically a $2 theological word that means cleansed, made clean. I want you to come with me back to Revelation chapter 7. And I want you to see what happens there in verse 9, the second half, after we see this multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. It says they were wearing, look at what they were wearing. They were wearing White robes. It's another thing that unifies us here. Not just the fact that we're singing about salvation, but white robes and we're holding palm branches in our hands. We'll get to the palm branches in a second. Let's think about this white robes picture. They're wearing white robes. Well, what's interesting is when you get down later, these people who are, who are wearing white robes, who are they? And it says in verse 14, they are those who have came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that a weird picture? 
When you want to wash something that's white, blood is not usually the first thing you put in the washing machine. How do you wash something in blood so that it comes out white? And this, this picture is just striking. It's really kind of like a paradox here that we would be made white by blood. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see in this, this paradox, this picture, two different things. First of all, this is a picture of how we have the victory of Christ. We have his victory. Salvation, the song that we sing in verse 10 there, salvation belongs to our God. The word literally means victory. You see it in chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. You see it in chapter 19, verse 1. Salvation in the book of Revelation is really a picture of victory, conquering, overcoming. So what you've got is a song of victory, but it says salvation belongs to who? Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. His is the victory. The victory belongs to God and His Son, Christ. That's where the victory is centered. This picture of being a white robe is not even first and foremost about us. It's about Christ. I want you to hold your place here. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 49. This is the passage we referenced just a second ago. We didn't read this part of the passage. We stopped at verse 10. I want you to see verse 11. I want you to see another bookend, so to speak, in the book of Revelation, or in the book of Revelation and Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 11. Remember, this is talking about Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says in Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, it says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. And listen to this. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So we see in this picture of Jesus and the line of the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, this picture of having garments washed in wine, robes dipped in the blood of, of, of grapes. So we see the picture first here in Genesis 49. Then you come to the very end. Go with me to Revelation chapter 19. Look at the picture of Jesus at the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. We'll start in verse 12. When we get to verse 13, we're going to see Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. It says, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one else knows but he himself. Now look with me at Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. It says, He is dressed in a robe dipped in what? In blood. And his name is the Word of God. Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. So the picture in Genesis 49 and Revelation chapter 19 is the fact that Jesus wears a, a robe that's been dipped in blood, that's been washed in blood. And what we've got here in the book of Revelation is a picture of Christ's victory over sin with his blood. We've got a picture of the lamb who was slain. But if you come back to Revelation chapter 5, even you get to verse 6, it says that I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. But here's what it says. It says the lamb was standing in the middle of the throne. It's one of my favorite pictures in all the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. A lamb that looks like it's been slain, looking mutilated, looking slaughtered, but the lamb is standing. If a lamb has been slaughtered, the lamb does not stand very well, but not this lamb. He has paid the price for sin. He has gone to the cross. He has been crucified there, but he has conquered by way of crucifixion. Now he is standing in the middle of the throne. He has risen over sin. He has power over sin and death and the grave, and he's been resurrected. So here's the picture. Christ, salvation belongs to Christ. The victory is his. And then when it depicts us in Revelation chapter 7 wearing white robes, it's uniting us with Christ. Our robes dipped in his blood. Our robes a picture of the fact that we too now have conquered sin. We too have victory over sin. We have his victory. May we constantly remind ourselves from God's word that across this room, no matter what sins you are struggling with, no matter how, how many times you're giving in over and over and over again, and no matter how many times the adversary tries to remind us that we do not have the victory, we do have the victory over sin. We've conquered sin by Christ. He has conquered it for us. And there is coming a day when we will stand before him in white robes, symbolic of the picture that we have conquered sin completely and sin will be no more.
and the struggles with sin will be completely gone because we have his victory. We have been sanctified. Now, we've been sanctified to serve him. Why has God cleansed us like this? To serve him. Not only do we have his victory, but we have a whole new vocation, a whole new job, a whole new responsibility, and it involves service. What you see happen in verse 11 all the way down to verse 14, it reiterates this with this, this sevenfold praise being given to God. Amen, praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength be to God. And then you get down to verse 15. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. They serve him day and night in his temple. Now, here's a picture that it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. For the sake of time, we won't turn there. You might write some of these verses down. You go back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and what God told his people is that they were going to be, he called them a kingdom of priests. Now, a priest was someone who was intimately associated with the glory of God, daily in the presence of God. In fact, when you get later on in the book of Exodus, you see God calling out in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, a particular tribe, the tribe of the Levites, Aaron and his descendants, and they were the priests who would literally serve in the temple. You get to chapter 29, it actually shows them being sprinkled with blood from the altar that makes them clean. And so what you've got in the Old Testament is a picture of God's people serving him, especially this group of priests from the Levites that were serving him day and night in the temple. But then you get to 1 Peter in the New Testament and everything change, changes. And what you've got is a picture of Peter saying, now you as the church, you are a royal priesthood. You don't have to go through somebody else to be in the presence of God. You dwell in the presence of God day in and day out. Day and night, it says in Revelation chapter 7, and you serve him. Now, this is, this is the job responsibility that we have in heaven. We will serve him day and night. Now, I'm guessing when some of us hear this, our, shall, our faith can sometimes fall into a shallowness that when we hear that I'm for eternity going to serve Christ, serve God day and night, well, what's the, what's the fun in that? What's to look forward to in that? I'm guessing some of you go to Starbucks every once in a while. I do the same, and I was at Starbucks the other day. I got one of those venti cups, and it had on the side a quote like a lot of these cups do. I want you to hear the quote on the Starbucks cup quote said, heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. Now that's I'm guessing from somebody who is not a follower of Christ. <laughs> but when I look in the church, we have a tendency to picture heaven the same way. A luxury hotel where we're going to sit by the pool all day long and all the good things we're going to have. And we picture heaven as this place where we're going to have all the finest amenities this world has to offer. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to remind you that heaven is not a place where we're going to have all the finest amenities this world has to offer. Heaven is a place where the finest amenities of this world cannot compare with the fact that we are dwelling with Jesus Christ. And when you have Jesus, you don't, you don't need things. For us to even begin to depict heaven as the things we will have shows that we don't know who Jesus is. We will be with him. We will enjoy his life and life with him for all of eternity. And there is no more beautiful picture than they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This is where all of history is headed toward. We have a new vocation. Sign us up for this job. We have been sanctified. Why? To serve him. And that's what unites us together in this diversity. We've all been purchased to praise him, sanctified to serve him. And finally, we've all been led to love him. 
And you get down to verse 16, and it says, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. Now listen to who leads us. The lamb at the center of the throne will be our shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I want you to see two pictures of God here in the last part of Revelation chapter 7. First of all, I want you to see God is an ever-present protector. He is the ever-present protector. It says, really at the end of verse 15, it says, He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Now, this is another rich Old Testament picture. You might write this down. Go back to Leviticus chapter 23, your time with the Lord this week, and look at the Feast of Tabernacles because the picture of the Feast of Tabernacles is all over Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 17. This was a feast in the Old Testament that God told his people to celebrate, and it was basically a celebration of two things. First of all, it was a celebration of the fact that they had lived in tents while they wandered around in the wilderness, and God had tabernacled among them. God had made his presence known among them, that when they were wandering around through all the hardships of the wilderness, that God never left them alone. He was always with them. And so at this feast, what they would do is they would come together, and for a week, for seven days, they would live in booths or tents, basically. And they would commemorate the time when God brought them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and never forgot them, always protected them. That's the first thing it celebrates. Second is the Feast of Tabernacles was basically a celebration of the harvest. After all the crops had been gathered in, then you would celebrate thanking God for all the crops he had brought, the harvest that had come in. And so what you would do is every day you would go to the temple. You would carry, coincidentally, palm branches in your hands, and you would go to the temple and you would celebrate the victory because God had brought in the harvest. So that was the picture in the Old Testament. When you get to Revelation chapter 7, you see God making a very clear picture to the Feast of Tabernacles, saying, I'm going to spread my tent over you. I'm going to show my presence among you, ever-present, to protect you. And what you see in Revelation chapter 7, remember who this book was written to. It was written to Christians who were experiencing some deep suffering and persecution for their faith. And God is reminding them with this picture that he has not left them, that he is still covering them with his presence and his protection. And he's reminding them that there is coming a day when they will gather together with their palm branches not to celebrate a bunch of crops coming in. Instead, they will gather together to celebrate the heavenly harvest of a multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language gathered around. They will finally have all been brought in. It is a celebration of that. He has protected us from this day until that. Isn't that a great Old Testament imagery brought in here? Not only our protector, but he is our eternal provider. The lamb is our shepherd. Does that seem a little weird? Shepherds are not usually lambs. They, they kind of take care of lambs. But the lamb in Revelation chapter 7 is our shepherd. The lamb who is identified with the needs of the sheep is our shepherd. And it says, he will lead them to springs of living water. Put a little note out to the side and put Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 and 2 there, because that's a picture of the river of life that's in the middle of, of the, the picture of the New Jerusalem. And the river of life brings healing and fruit to all the nations. It will drink. He will lead them to springs of living water where you will be satisfied forever. And listen to this. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This last week, Heather and I took Caleb to the doctor for his one-year shots. It was not a fun afternoon. He'd come in there, and he'd missed his nap anyway, so he was not in the best of moods. But the nurse comes in with this plate full of shots. And I've told you before, I don't really do good at even the giving blood thing or shots altogether. Needles just don't don't do it for me. Not that they do it really for anybody, but I really get queasy. And so I just kind of step back and the nurse says, well, I need one of you to lean over your son and then I'll hold a little over the top of your son. Then I'll hold his legs and I'll give him the shots. And so I decided it was best for Caleb's mom to be a part of this process. <laughs> so she leans over his chest and the lady's holding his feet. And I'm just on the other side of the room, just uh, kind of looking and all of a sudden, she pulls out that first needle. And Caleb was kind of smiling until that needle hit his leg. And then it was all over. And he just starts screaming and yelling. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. I can't even watch what's happening. I look at Heather. Tears are coming out of her eyes. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. 
finally, after she finished one, two, three, four, just keeps giving these shots, he's crying. She finally gets up off of him, leaves the room, and we gather around, and we're hugging him, and I'm just wiping the tears from her eyes and, and his eyes. And I want to remind you that no matter how painful the struggles of this life get, no matter how deep the sorrow feels, no matter how many tears are shed, wondering if it's ever going to end or if it's ever going to get better, I want to remind you that it is. And there is coming a day when God Almighty himself will literally wipe the tears from your eyes. He is our eternal provider. All glory be to his name. We are purchased to give him praise. Cleansed, made white, sanctified to serve him day and night. And we have been led to love him as the one who satisfies us completely. Now that's the picture of what unites us from every tribe, nation, people, and language. So what does that mean for our corporate worship? I want you to think about a few implications with me. And then I want us to put it into practice. First of all, I think it means that we need to get in on a global perspective of worship. We need to get in on a global perspective of worship. I want to remind us this morning that worship is so much bigger in the purpose and the plan and the family of God than what happens inside this building Sunday morning for a few hours every week. We are part of a much bigger picture here. We have brothers and sisters, a part of our family, who are worshiping all around the city this morning and who are worshiping all around the world today. The Justice Jeffries reminded us with his welcome from the Sudan that before we even got up, they were singing his praises. This is not the end-all, be-all of worship. There's a global picture here that we need to constantly be aware of. I think that'll help us with the second implication. Not only do we need to get in on a global perspective of worship, we need to get over the different styles of worship that divide us in the church. Yes, the pastor just said, get over it. <laughs> you realize what an arrogant statement it is to say that this style of worship is what it has to look like when our brothers and sisters in Africa worship in a completely different style. And an underground house churches in Asia worship in a completely different style. What we've done is we've been looking at biblical non-negotiables in corporate worship. And camping out on those. But if we spend our time debating and dialoguing about this style or that style of worship and even letting it divide us, you realize we run the danger of negating that which Christ died to bring us, diversity in worship. Jesus died to redeem, to gather worshipers from every race, every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. Let's embrace that and see the beauty of that. The greatness of a leader is seen in the diversity of people who follow him. That's the picture of every person, every, every people group across this planet being united in praise to Jesus Christ. He is supreme when our worship is diverse. So let's get over the different styles of worship that divide us in the church. Third, we need to get involved in the joy of continual worldwide worship. My favorite phrase, one of my favorite phrases, I can't say it's my favorite. There's a lot of great stuff in Revelation 7, but it says they serve him day and night in his temple. It's a picture of perpetual, continual service before God. And it's a picture, I think, it's a good reminder for us this morning to realize, to see that every moment of every day in all parts of the world, God is gathering praise for his name. And it is our highest privilege to be a part of that praise on a continual basis, day in and day out, moment in and moment out. Worship is a much bigger picture than what happens for a certain amount of time in one particular location, one time a week. Fourth, we need to get lost. And the preacher just said get lost too, but this is the good part. We need to get lost in the love God has for each of us. 
This is one of the things that as I was studying the diversity in this picture, it just came alive. It's one of those moments where you just fall on your knees when you're studying the Word, and it just, it all comes together. This diversity, every nation, every people, every language, every, every tribe gathered around the throne, seeing his praises for his salvation. We know that even in this room, even though we're pretty much a part of the same people group and, and, and our lives look a lot like each other, even in this room, there's a lot of diversity. Personalities, different diversity in gifts, stages of life, areas of life, what we've gone through, what we're going through. There's a lot of diversity even in a room like this. Isn't it an amazing thought to think that the God of the universe knows how to love each and every one of us in this room? He knows your personality quirks and my personality quirks. He knows the things that you struggle with and that I struggle with. And the God of the universe knows how to penetrate each of our hearts with a diverse love that unites us together in praise to him. What an amazing picture across this room that though I certainly do not understand what any one of you, much less all of you, are going through, that the God of the universe knows exactly who we are, where we are in our lives, and knows how to penetrate our hearts with his love. So let's get lost in the love God has for each of us, even in diverse ways. And let that lead us, finally, to get on with the global mission God has called us to. Get on with the global mission God has called us to. Over the last 10, 20 years in the church, we have spent so much time debating different facets of worship. God, make us a people that rise up and say, we're not going to talk about how and why this. We're going to look at the biblical non-negotiables you've given us, and we're going to talk about how and why we can reach all the people groups of the world with the gospel you've entrusted to us. If our worship does not propel us to go to the nations with his grace and his mercy, then we have missed the whole point of worship. So let's get on with the global mission God has called us to as his people. God called us to from the very beginning, and God is still calling us to today looking forward to the day when history will culminate in a multitude that no one could count, seeing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We've been purchased to praise Him, sanctified to serve Him, and we've been led to love Him. So let's put it into practice. What I'd like for us to do over the next few minutes is something that we do every once in a while that sometimes takes us a little out of our comfort zones, but based on what we've seen in our study of corporate worship, participation, is a non-negotiable part of corporate worship. We're a community of faith. So what I want to invite us to do over the next few minutes is to, across this room, gather together in, in diverse groups, groups of three, four, five, two, three, four, five, or six, just with the people around you. And we're going to spend a few moments praying together in light of what we've seen in God's Word. I hope you've seen in this text a lot of fuel for our prayers. We have a responsibility even the next few moments, to pray for unreached people groups. That they would hear the gospel. They would know the gospel. We have the responsibility to pray that we would be vessels in God's hand to be used to make the gospel known among them. We've got brothers and sisters around the world that are worshiping in different ways today that we have the opportunity this morning to pray for. I hope that our spending this time in prayer will make us more aware of the fact that we can and we need to be praying for our Sudanese brothers and sisters. I think we need to pray all across this room for Jeffries and those he leads, but also for our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe, our brothers and sisters in underground house churches in Asia, our brothers and sisters in Australia, our brothers and sisters in Latin America that we'll be serving with all this summer. Let's spend some time praying as a global family of God. And then let's pray toward the end that God would use us as his church to accomplish the global mission he has put in front of us. And so I want to invite you to get into groups two, three, four, five, or six around you, and let's spend some time in prayer. And then from that, we're going to erupt into praise to his name, just like we see here in Revelation chapter 7. I invite you into a time of prayer now. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you are a high school graduate between the ages of 18 and 20, I want to invite you to go to this website, radicalgapyear.com. And there you will hear about an incredible opportunity that awaits you if you're up for it. The Radical Gap Year exists to assist high school graduates in becoming disciples of Jesus who leverage their entire lives for the sake of God's glory among all nations. And this program is designed to equip and encourage graduates 
in a variety of areas of life, including godly living, intellectual development, and even everyday responsibilities and life skills. If you're considering, or maybe you haven't considered, inserting a gap year between the time you graduate high school and begin your journey in college, we hope you consider the Radical Gap Year, where you can learn to leverage your life for the cause of Christ. And it's a really exciting program. This is filled with discipleship communities, interactive lectures through an intense study program here in the Washington, D.C. metro area, but also international missions experience overseas. So if this sounds like something that is exciting to you, then I hope you will go to Radical Gap Year. Or you can reach out to us directly by shooting an email to gapyear at radical.net. By all means, if you are not an 18 to 20-year-old who has graduated high school, forward this information to someone who is, someone that you feel might be interested in this incredible program. So again, that is radicalgapyear.com. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us there at radical.net, or more specifically, radicalgapyear.com.